0: Hello and welcome to episode 181 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast, I'm Adam. Today's story is from South Wales and looks at a double murder. This story was written by author Catherine Yaff. Please do check out her website at catherineyaff.co.uk. Thank you so much Catherine. Before we start, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, but especially this week's new members of this exclusive club, that's Kyle Robertson, Fiona Hutchins, Rita Seed, Hayes Selby D and J. Barnes. Thank you all so much for your support, which is incredibly appreciated and a special shout out to supporter Julie Waterworth and her new grandson, Walter Palmer from Barnoldswick in Lancashire. Let's see what we were listening to at the time of today's story. Number one in the u k was take that with pray just keeping four non-blondes from the top spot with What's Up. In the US, UB40 were in the top spot with Can't Help Falling In Love. I think I still prefer Elvis. And in the Australian charts, the top-selling album this year was Whitney with the soundtrack from The Bodyguard. Meatloaf and Bat Out of Hell and Bat Out of Hell 2 were both in the top 12. In the news this month, Steffi Graf and Pete Sampras won at Wimbledon. Aeroflot started non-stop flights between Moscow and New York. I had two shaky Aeroflot flights back in the day, did you? It was the last day of first-class cricket for absolute legend Ian Botham. I was in the crowd at five Gardens Cardiff that day. MI5 published a rather dull booklet, the security service, revealing publicly for the first time its activities, operations and duties, as well as the identity and photographs of Stella Rimmington as Director General. And just to make you feel old, Harry Kane and Stormzy were both born this month. Did you guess it? It was July 1993. And Monday the 26th, 1993, was just another Monday. Harry and Meghan Tews were in the 60s. They lived a quiet, private life at their home in the Vale of Glamorgan in South Wales, where they owned a six acre small holding, which I'll try to pronounce. Tai r e Wan. It means house in the meadow. It was a house full of lovely memories where they had raised their only daughter Cheryl here and now they lived happily in retirement. Harry had worked before as a grocer. Each Monday saw them visit the local supermarket where Megan did the shopping whilst Harry waited in the Land Rover reading a newspaper and having a chat with his sister as usual. And it was exactly the same on this standard Monday when they were seen by a neighbour returning to the farmhouse at around 11am. Upon their return, it would appear that they prepared themselves lunch, and after cleaning away the plates, either Meghan or Harry laid out their best China tea set, clearly expecting a special visitor. But the tea service was never used. Shots were heard coming from the farmhouse at around 1.30pm, but this was no cause for concern in this rural community and they were dismissed by the neighbours as the sound of shots was quite common, especially as Harry frequently tried to keep the rabbit population from eating his prized cabbages that he sold at farmers' markets. Later that evening, Cheryl, who was Harry and Megan's daughter, she rang the farmhouse but there was no reply. Another relative had also tried phoning earlier that afternoon, and again the call wasn't answered. Increasingly concerned for the welfare of her parents, who always answered the phone, Cheryl, who lived too far away to just pop over herself, a five-hour drive away in Orpington, Kent, she asked one of the neighbours to check in at the farmhouse. The neighbour did so at around 10pm and reported back that the farm was eerily deserted with the door unlocked. The couple had unpacked their shopping and had started making some food, as there was a pan on the cooker ready to be switched on, with the chopped potatoes in it ready for cooking. And on the table, there was a special cup that was used for guests, and a teapot and a milk jug, as well as a sugar bowl and a magazine. On hearing this, and after discussing it with her fiancé, Jonathan Jones, Cheryl called the police. They also agreed that Jonathan should make the long drive to her parents' house that evening. Have you ever made one of those trips where you are just terrified at what you will find at the end of the journey? Jonathan left at about 10pm, arriving at about 3am the next day. The police had already broken into the property by the time Jonathan had arrived, and they'd found the body of Harry Tooze, wrapped in a carpet and hidden in a cowshed under some hay attached to the farm. Harry had been shot dead at point-blank range with a 12-bore shotgun. His wife Megan's body was discovered a short time later, having suffered the same fate as her husband. A single shot with a 12-bore shotgun. Detectives expected that in such a tight-knit community that somebody must have seen something suspicious. But despite a large police operation and considerable publicity over the next five months, very little evidence came to light about who had killed Harry and Meghan and why. There were reports of a Suzuki car crossing the cattle grid at the bottom of the dirt road leading to the farmhouse, but nothing else concerning the vehicle was ever uncovered. Otherwise, it appeared that detectives had drawn a complete blank. Who could possibly have had a reason to murder this private, friendly and gentle couple? Was it someone they'd known, or an attack by a stranger? Locals were seriously concerned for their safety. After all, this was a community that had only seen one reported break-in over the last 60 years. As an example, Wales Online tells of one villager, Sheila Rees who was 61 at the time and lived with her husband nearby. She told how she was terrified to leave her home, saying, I used to walk through the woods near the farmhouse to pick bluebells, but I won't be going out on my own again until they find the killer. There was even greater shock in the local community, when on December the 8th 1993, Jonathan Jones was arrested for the double murder of Harry and Meghan Tooze. The police theory was that Jonathan, who was said to be in debt, had arrived at the farmhouse unexpectedly that afternoon, causing the Teasers to bring out their special china, and detectives they revealed had found Jonathan's thumbprint on the saucer. But instead of drinking tea and enjoying a family afternoon, instead he took a 12-bore shotgun and killed his future in-laws for the 150,000 inheritance that Cheryl was to receive on their deaths. The police also believe that after the murders, Jones drove the long five-hour journey back to the flat he shared in Kent with Cheryl, telling her he had spent the day looking at flats. When Jonathan Jones had first arrived at the scene, police immediately noted the unusual demeanour of him. He was exceptionally and unexpectedly calm and unemotional upon hearing the news of a body being found, when he simply asked whether it was male or female. He asked no further questions. Officers at the scene thought this strange at best and downright suspicious at worst, it was noted. But the evidence against him appeared to some as less than convincing. The whole weight of the case against him rested on the single thumbprint found on the saucer. And in terms of the motive, was Jonathan Jones really in debt? He'd met Cheryl at university and Jonathan had got into financial difficulty before, having a flat repossessed but Cheryl was very good with money, and with her looking after the pair's finances, they appeared comfortable. Between them, Jonathan and Cheryl now earned £25,000 per year, and Cheryl had £6,000 sitting in her bank account. A 25000 salary even now is above the UK average, but back in 1993, it was considered a really healthy income. The case against Jonathan Jones went to trial at Newport Crown Court in 1994. The prosecution alleged that Jonathan had drunk tea with his future in-laws before killing them and driving the 200 miles back to Orpington. It was heard that Jonathan and Cheryl, who had been together for eight years, were regularly in arrears with their rent and that Jonathan had wanted to start his own market research firm even though he only had £100 in his own bank account. It was noted that he knew that Cheryl was the sole beneficiary of Harry and Meghan Tooze's estate. When Jonathan was asked about his relationship with the murdered couple, Jonathan stated that he was very fond of them, he spent a lot of time with them, and they had as close a relationship as one could have. He claimed he was like a son to Harry Tooze, and it was ludicrous that he would have wanted them dead. He told the court that on the day of the murders, he'd been out looking for office space and that he had seen a lift engineer in Orpington, something that at the time of the trial was neither explored nor disproved. But regardless of the arguably flimsy evidence against him, Jonathan Jones was found guilty of the double murder by a majority of 10 to 2. Upon hearing the verdict, Mr Justice Rugier wrote a note to the barristers involved, saying, I'm bound to record that the verdict caused me some surprise. He later wrote to the Lord Chancellor's department expressing his doubt about the conviction, saying I found myself by the end of the trial thinking that if I were the tribunal of fact despite many suspicious circumstances I should be conscious of significant doubt. But despite his misgivings Jonathan was sentenced to life in prison. At the trial there had been a large number of Megan Tooze's and Harry Tooze's relatives in the court and when the verdict was read out you could hear them gasp with relief. A cousin of Megan Tooze said afterwards, We all believe that it was the right verdict. Harry and Megan have had justice at last. But not all the family shared these emotions. During the trial, Cheryl Tooze had stayed away, firmly believing that her fiancé was an innocent man. On hearing the verdict, she said, If I thought he was guilty, I would say so. I wouldn't protect him over this. She went on to begin work on a high-profile media campaign, in the hopes of drawing attention to the case. She put up a twenty-five thousand pounds reward for information leading to the killer, ironically based on Jonathan's conviction, to be funded by part of her one hundred and fifty k inheritance. In November nineteen ninety-five, Cheryl gave an interview to the Western Mail newspaper, telling how she was distraught at her parents' murder, and then seeing her partner found guilty of the crimes. That night I cried hysterically, she said. Jonathan rang me and told me to get on with my life. But I knew he was innocent and I had to stand by him. I've had to be quite strong. Part of me came to the surface I hadn't seen before. I've surprised myself. My confidence comes from knowing that Jonathan is innocent. I know that what I'm doing is right. Jonathan immediately appealed his sentence and after spending two and a half years in prison, his case came before the Court of Appeal in 1996. During the appeal, some of the evidence put before the court was, well, it was pretty astonishing. There was no other evidence of Jonathan's involvement, no DNA traces, apart from the thumbprint, which could have been left on any of the occasions that Jonathan had taken tea with the Tooses. There was no blood or tissue found on Jonathan's clothing or on the glasses that he always wore. A lot was made of this, as even the most thorough of cleansing wouldn't have removed the minute traces of blood from the tiny crevices of his glasses. Speaking at the court, his QC, John Reese said, They found nothing. The killer would have been liberally splattered with blood and brain tissue. He would have been dishevelled from carrying tarpaulin sheets and from moving bodies. But the defence team's real breakthrough came when the lift engineer, that Jonathan claimed to have seen in his original trial, was finally found. Originally, the lift engineers had said they were on a break, so they couldn't have seen him. But a till receipt proved that their timings were wrong by about an hour. They gave new statements, saying that they had been wrong, and that Jonathan was, in fact, the man they'd seen in Orpington at the time of the murders. Jonathan Jones' defence team concluded to the court that the prosecution in the original trial had not fully established a real motive the double murder and that the case had just been based on conjecture and circumstantial evidence. The hearing lasted for another four days, with Jonathan Jones sat in the court, pale and gaunt. But at the conclusion, the three judges took five minutes to decide that the convictions were unsafe. Yep, you heard correctly. Just five minutes. Lord Justice Rose said, the court is of the clear view that these convictions were unsafe. On hearing this, Jonathan Jones, in a mixture of relief and disbelief, slumped forward in his seat, whilst outside his fiancée, Cheryl, declared to reporters that, this is a victory for love and truth, but my fight is not over. My intention is to carry on and find out who killed my parents. My reward of £25,000 still stands and will continue to do so. The initial trial and subsequent media campaign had taken its toll on Cheryl. She lost a significant amount of weight and had to give up her full-time job due to poor health and she developed a stomach ulcer related to the stress of everything. Even more than before, she was resolutely determined to find who killed her parents. Cheryl and Jonathan finally married once Jonathan was released from prison. As a result of the overturned sentence, the initial murder inquiry was subject to review by an independent advisory group. These reviews are conducted by groups that have no association with the police, and although sometimes controversial, South Wales police had used them on two occasions in the past. Their job is to review the inquiry and make recommendations, and as a result of this, the panel recommended that the case be reopened with a new inquiry in 2001. But what leads did the new detective team have to follow up on, considering the sparse evidence from the original case? In fact, surprisingly, they had a few. In September 1992, Harry and Meghan Tews had a break-in. The only item taken was Harry's old and somewhat dodgy shotgun. Could it be that this was the murder weapon that had killed them? that question still remains unanswered as no murder weapon has ever been found. In May 1993, the couple had a meeting at a local solicitor's office with a grey-haired man who has never been identified. Also at this time, it was known that Harry had had a huge row with someone on his smallholding, as reported by a neighbour. But this was never treated as evidence and therefore not investigated, despite Harry having been seen with a middle-aged man some weeks before his death. Harry also told an old friend, "If anything happens to me, look after Megan, Cheryl, and the farm." When we listen to this now, it's quite hard to understand why this wasn't treated with more seriousness by detectives, isn't it? So, what prompted Harry Toos to fear that something would happen to him? Was he living with an unknown threat? And if so, who had made those threats? In 2000, South Wales Police announced a full review. The then Assistant Chief Constable Tony Rogers said he would leave no stone unturned and that the contents of the report will be made available to the public. The review team was headed by retired Detective Inspector Malcolm Ross and expected to take four months. Depressingly, to date, this report has never been published despite several Freedom of Information requests. In November 2000, police received an anonymous letter which police described as, I quote, interesting information but again, its contents have never been released. The later investigation also focused on two vehicles that were seen at the time in the area, and an appeal was made to speak to the owners of a black 4x4 and a red saloon car. Neither owner has ever come forward. In 2003, it was reported that the barrels of a shotgun were found nearby in a disused quarry by a member of the public, and they were taken away for forensic testing. However, it was noted that the people who found the shotgun barrels had painted them white before handing them in. The police also said they had been given a holdall that was found in a nearby iron ore mine that contained shotgun cartridges. Again, these were sent for testing and marked as a significant development. But who knows what became of it, because we haven't been told. A third review was carried out in 2011 after a man was convicted of a similar murder that took place near Milford Haven on the 22nd of December, 1985, when a man and his sister were shot dead at their home with a shotgun. That killer was John Cooper, who you're probably aware of. He was also known as the Bullseye Killer, after appearing on the popular 80s TV show. Cooper was convicted in May 2011 of the brutal murders of Richard and Helen Thomas in 1995, and the point-blank shootings of husband and wife Peter and Gwenda Dixon, in May 1989. So could John Cooper have been the man responsible for the double murder of Harry and Meghan Tooze? He was interviewed, but denied any knowledge or involvement. No surprises there. And as yet, police cannot provide any evidence to the contrary. But as we have seen regularly on this podcast, who knows of advances in forensic science as if this may change in the future. But for now, the brutal slaying of this elderly couple remains unsolved, and even though South Wales police have vowed not to close the case until the killers or killer are caught without new evidence, a conclusion seems highly unlikely. This state of limbo and not knowing, of course, does nothing for the remaining family and friends. Although Jonathan and Cheryl went on to marry shortly after Jonathan's release, their lives were completely changed. Jonathan has said that the conviction has pulled the rug out from under him in life and the stress affected the health of his wife Cheryl. She suffered cartilage loss during her pregnancy from which after the birth of their son she has never fully recovered leaving her with difficulty walking without support and she is now also partially deaf. Jonathan told Wells on Sunday she can go chopping with a trolley to lean on but she so struggles walking. The doctors at the time put it down to the unnatural stress that she was under. As I record this in April 2020, the case remains one of Wales' most notorious unsolved murder cases. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Just who killed Harry and Meghan Tews, and why? I think if there's one thing we can agree on, and I know it's always easy to blame the police who do such a difficult job well most of the time, but this wasn't South Wales Police's finest hour. The evidence to convict Jonathan was frail at best, but then again, it was enough for a jury to convict. But after the appeal, and if you get the time, Google the appeal court findings, it really is a poor effort. So many potential leads and information are investigated and examined properly. And the lack of transparency about the reports. I guess it's so it doesn't compromise another prosecution, But I don't really buy it. Surely you want to release as much information to the public as possible so other people will come forward and we can solve these murders. And who did kill them? Was it Cooper? The most plausible accounts I've read suggest it was him in a robbery gone wrong. But the evidence is still less than convincing. A bit like the evidence that convicted Jonathan Jones. Was it somebody just random? Or was it someone they knew? I think we must all have sympathy for Jonathan, Cheryl and their wider family and friends. For Jonathan, being convicted of murder and sent to prison for life isn't something that can just be set aside upon release, not just for him but his family and friends too. The scars don't just disappear and as we have heard, the mental struggles can lead to physical problems too. How would you react, you think, if this happened to you? So, I guess we just have to wait and see if there is ever justice for the couple and their families. I'm not feeling that confident as we sit here today, are you? Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast, and a huge thank you to Catherine Yaffe for writing this episode. Please check out her work at catherineyaffe.co.uk. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group to join a whopping 30,000 of us and support the show and help me keep producing a weekly episode, just head over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime for a special offer never to be repeated or offered. It just costs the price of a dodgy glass of warm wine a month that you can't drink at the pub right now anyway. You get access to over 40 bonus episodes and other exclusive content. Okay, so that's all from me for today. So until we speak again next week, have a good one, take it easy, And despite the provocation from all the others, trust me, I get it, please do stay classy. Cheerio.